Hello. Hannah. Hi. Yay. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat to me. Been waiting for my invite for years, mate. I know. Well, <laughs> okay, cool. So I'm going to do a black spiely poppy intro and then we're going to dive in. Great. Okay, great. It's been a busy year for the climate movement since last summer's scorching heat wave. Extinction Rebellion shut down the streets. The school strikes saw thousands of young people take a stand. Since no one else is doing anything, we will have to do so. And the Green New Deal has shot to the top of the political agenda, for now at least. Last month, Parliament passed a motion to declare an environment and climate change emergency. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm absolutely really proud to be part of a parliament that has passed a climate and uh, environment emergency. So today, as First Minister of Scotland, I am declaring that there is a climate emergency and Scotland will live Meanwhile, Theresa May is trying to use the last weeks of her premiership to build some sort of legacy, including a new target for net zero climate emissions by 2050. So, against that backdrop, what should the climate movement do next? That's the big question on the Weekly Economics podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. What do we want? Climate justice! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Climate justice! When do we want it? So, on the line, I'm joined by Hannah Martin, Greenpeace campaigner, climate strike organiser and all-round badass. Hello, Hannah. Where in the world are you? (laughs) I'm in Brussels right now, um, Mm. which is rare. I don't... Jet set. Well, I definitely don't jet set, but um, <laughs> that would be poor. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm here for just some some meetings to chat to some people about what's going on in the UK. Awesome. So we're going to start by talking about the protests at Mansion House, which by the time you hear this will be just over a week ago. Listeners probably have seen pictures on the news of you and other Greenpeace campaigners interrupting a speech by the Chancellor Philip Hammond. For me too, there is now just a scintilla of uncertainty as to what... The main news story of the days that followed was the way that Foreign Office Minister Mark Field behaved towards one of your colleagues, Janet Barker, which obviously led to him being suspended. So let's talk about that and what the main point of the protest was. What was the message that you were trying to send? So, yeah, it's it's great to be asked that question because basically a lot of the coverage, as you say, ended up focusing on a pretty awful incident. Um, mm. But the reason we, we targeted that event um, is because Philip Hammond and the Treasury more generally are key blockers, as we see it, uh, in, in taking the sort of radical action that we need. And they could be key enablers. You know, there's a huge economic opportunity when it comes to decarbonisation, when it comes to uh, action on climate change. And we were there to sort of give the alternative speech that we felt the Chancellor of the Exchequer should be making, given that it is a climate emergency. So in an ideal world, Philip Hammond would have stood up and given the speech that I well, attempted <laughs> to mm. make instead uh, before it got ripped out of my hands. And that speech mm. was really focusing on the opportunities of creating loads of new jobs, of investment in insulation programs, in renewable energy, of unlocking, you know, onshore wind, onshore solar, of properly giving signals to the market to move towards electric vehicles by 
phasing out the internal combustion engine much earlier, you know, the kinds of things that we want to see leadership on mm. and we're not seeing that leadership. So that was, we were trying to do the alternative mansion house speech and disrupt what was, you know, a gathering of the powerful, you know, the sort of sensible gray suited people in that room were the ones who essentially presided over the financial crash in 2008. Mm. And we were there to say, you know, we're not, that, we're not, we're not up for you crashing the climate as well. You have the yeah. power, the Bank of England, Treasury, come on, let's get moving. I mean, I mean, I'm on board with that. Um, <laughs> tell us, if you can, about the anything about the story of that night. So, how did you expect it to go to com- compared to how it actually went? I'm sure you didn't foresee the heavy-handed response, but yeah, how did you get in or that kind of stuff? If whatever you can say. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I can't tell you how we got in, but um, <laughs> what I can say is. So, so we, we kind of, we moved into the room as a group of people, we sort of walked in um, and we were trying to sort of move towards the front of the room uh, to be in front of the cameras and sort of take the position of the chancellor really. And we were pretty quickly blocked. Mm. We were blocked in different ways. And I think the point that I was trying to make about the treatment that Janet received is that there, there are ways to block protests. I was being blocked pretty forcefully as well actually I was having my arm like gripped and sort of trying to like pull me away Mm. maybe you can expect that I mean I think that was even a bit heavy-handed you can probably expect someone standing in front of you and we weren't pushing past them you know we were being non-violent we were being peaceful so someone stands in front of you and won't move then we're kind of blocked at that point Mm. but what happened to Janet was you know she was walking peacefully and anyone that's seen the video Mm. will know that she was you know there was no attempt to block her by dialogue or you know just by standing there that she was like physically slammed against a marble pillar and then you know dragged out by the neck so there are proportionate ways to interact with peaceful protest you know the thing I was trying to say a lot was like we have a right to be there we have a right to hold people to account Mm. the history of change is the history of people disrupting the rooms of the powerful to amplify voices that aren't being heard and Mm. and if we if we're not allowed to do that if that's somehow blocked then I you know I think that's a key part of our democracy really that's being blocked wow thanks so much for sharing that story and for doing that I mean as as we as you've shared it doesn't sound like a small thing you you know um being in that room and as you say representing for for the voices of people who uh who can't be there I want to broaden out a little bit there's been a a notable difference in the past year in the way that climate change is spoken about and the polls show that public interest in climate has increased significantly how and why do you think that's happened yeah it's so interesting isn't it apparently it's it's number three or something in in the general public's top concerns after the nhs and brexit Mm. i think there has been a huge upswell in interest I think it's down to a number of different things colliding you know we had the IPCC sorry the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, report coming out (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh, coming out last um, autumn which kind of had that headline figure around 12 years left which sort of I think ignited a lot of organizers activists organizations to feel quite emboldened to up the urgency of their of of what they were saying Mm. and Extinction Rebellion kind of uh, beginning in the autumn and then having this massive moment in March but but that actually came after the first youth strikes Mm. you know there was a massive youth strike in mid-February which was drawing on Greta's 
exploding and then and then Greta coming to the UK you know there, there was this and the heat wave in February mm. you know you have all these different things playing off one another to create this sort of moment and I know that there's been analysis done of you know media mentions of climate change and it, you can track it over the last 10 years and you know we've surpassed Copenhagen and like Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement and Paris mm. Agreement itself in terms of right now media mentions are at an all-time high you know that's massive and I think it's organizing I think it's people giving themselves the power to take to the streets you know I've obviously been interacting mostly with the youth strikers Mm. in the UK who are so amazing and inspiring they're so inspiring and you know they're incredibly focused actually their political analysis is is really amazing they're incredibly strategic they're Mm. leaders um but they also represent a sort of moral truth like a moral leadership Mm. and the fact of them being some of the people who are going to be the most impacted by climate change along with people in the global south along with the most vulnerable communities all over the world you know they they represent a voice that is really authentic Mm. when they say we we are going to feel this sorted Mm. out it it resonates I think in the halls of power and that's really amazing mm. so yeah I, I do think press I mean press coverage has been off the hook you know the, yeah. the news night the today program these are places where climate change has not been a headline issue in the way it has in the last few months for sure mm. and I mean yeah I think with the youth climate strikers they're also kind of bringing that approach to the way that even the way that they're doing the organizing you know that intersectionality I recently saw them show up to a demo for a gay migrant man who was going to be deported and they stood up and made a speech about the connections the kind of deep connections between climate justice migration hostile environment in literally the most eloquent way I've ever heard and <laughs> I think she was 17 18 I was like yeah this actually is giving me some hope it really was quite amazing yeah I think that was Lola and yes, a Lola. lot of them have that analysis uh, because that's how they see the world and one of the things that you know they've got a union they're, they're reaching out to loads of unions and, and trying to work with them on Green New Deal organising um, and some of the stuff they're saying around like, you know, we're the workers of the future. We're the ones that are impacted by zero hours contracts. We strike because you striked first. Like we're inspired by your movement and we want to turn up for you. That is incredible. And it's it's kind of bu- building new ground where there wasn't, you know, relationships before, which is so inspiring. Wow. Um, okay, so let's move on to Theresa May, unfortunately. Sorry <laughs> to take it from hope and intersectionality in the future. Back to T May. Right, so her last minute net zero by 2050 commitment. Let's talk about that. So what does the science say that governments should be aiming for and how significant is this commitment, if it's significant at all? Well, you know, she was operating off the basis of the Committee on Climate Change's recommendations around when they think net zero is is, is doable and and that was a whole there was a whole campaign around that I think that most people think that 2050 is 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 not soon enough that's certainly Greenpeace's line it's certainly the youth strikers line is that it's not soon enough if you take into account our responsibility for historic emissions um, if you take into account the needs of the global south it's interesting to me that that was the policy that she grabbed for as yeah. a legacy policy. Mm. That's interesting because that to me shows that, you know, she was like, what will people remember me for? What do people need to see? What 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 are people clamoring for? And she grabbed for net zero. And, uh, you know, and that that's interesting because that means that the climate is changing 
I mean, obviously it's changed. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> but like, that means that, like, you know, the, the the narrative space has been opened up for her to feel that that was what she she should look to. I think it's you know it's the responsibility now of everybody to push. You know, what does that mean? What is the pathway? Because at the moment we're not even on track to meet our current targets. Mm. So you know, symbolically, things like the climate emergency declaration, net zero symbolically there's something there but what is actually how are we going to pin down whatever government is in power to a program and a pathway of policy change and you know wholesale economic shifts Mm. which will actually help us to meet that because at the moment you know they've included things that are morally dubious like offsetting your carbon emissions to developing countries which is completely wrong and Philip Hammond got in there at the last minute a five-year review period which he was basically like if other countries don't come on board in five years we should reserve the right to pull out and I'm like what that's not how it works (laughs) that's not how this is going to work you know we need to move faster the irony of course is that this is the government that has just led the world by committing to a zero carbon economy by 2050. Philip Hammond has also said that it would, uh, this 2050 net zero target, well, first of all, what's the net in net zero stand for? And then the second point is Hammond has said that it would cost one trillion and require spending cuts for schools, hospitals and the police force. Where's he got that from? He's not, the thing we were saying in our Mansion House speech is that he's not accounting for the benefits of decarbonisation. Like if you're going to cost a policy, wouldn't you cost for the health benefits of getting rid of air pollution? Wouldn't you cost for not having to invest in flood defences? You know, wouldn't you cost for like getting loads of people back into work through like, you know, the investment in infrastructure and the industry that provides? So I think when when we talk about decarbonisation, we would talk about it as not, you know, we need a certain percentage of GDP to be invested in it for sure in order for it for it to be possible. But actually, why wouldn't you talk about that as a net benefit for the economy in the long run? Mm. I mean, yeah. So what does the what does the net in 2050 net zero stand for mean? So what it refers to is basically achieving uh, net zero carbon dioxide emissions by balancing carbon emissions with carbon removal or mm. simply eliminating carbon emissions altogether. Mm. So what some people would challenge in that definition is that carbon offsetting, which is what is built into the net zero, well, isn't ruled out of the net zero agreement that we've now got, is giving your carbon emissions off to someone else, developing countries or the global south. And that's, we would consider that to be like morally wrong. Whereas Mm. if you talk about um, total decarbonisation of our economy, then you're talking about eliminating carbon emissions altogether. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much. Okay, moving on. So the government keeps talking about the net zero by 2050 thing, but the climate movement seems to be pushing for the Green New Deal. Uh, the Green New Deal is, uh, is something that we've, we've done a whole episode on on the podcast, and it sounds like these two things are kind of different demands. So should the Green New Deal be the unifying demand for the whole movement, do you think? I think what's exciting about the Green New Deal is that it's, a huge policy platform. It could pull together social, environmental and economic struggles. And I think essentially it can fix the environment at the same time as fixing the economy. Mm. 
I think that the reason why for me it's exciting is it offers the opportunity to talk to people about things that they understand their immediate mm. concerns, their lived experience, mm. whilst also bringing in the wider problem of the climate crisis. Because, you know, before this, essentially, it was a combination of kind of more individualistic solutions about consumption, yeah. like, you know, plastic the kind text. of plastics debate or mm. that sort of thing, which aren't necessarily bad. Mm. And sort of technocratic market-based stuff, you know, like you, if you give the market the right signals, then they'll build loads of wind power or whatever. Um, but actually, that I don't think people buy that that will fix this. If they're being told this is a climate emergency, we've got 10 years left, like this is really serious. I don't think they believe that those things are going to fix the yeah, problem. It doesn't feel like So enough. actually... It doesn't feel like enough. So the Green New Deal, I think what's happened in America is people are like, oh, that's massive. You know, when a when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I was about to call her AOC, that's how yeah. much. No, uh, no, I mean, she's, a, she's a, regular, um, a regular name on the podcast. So maybe <laughs> listeners would have got that. Yeah. When like, you know, she talks about like, this is our moonshot. Like mm. this is our, you know, this is a World War II effort equivalent. I think people get that. Because the severity of the crisis they are being presented with demands a massive solution. Mm. Um, and I think that people also, it, it begins with a concern of ordinary working people. Like, the economy's broken. It's not working for me. It's not working for my community. We need a new economy that's rooted in climate protection, jobs, you know, good, secure jobs, which can solve the crisis that's facing us. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, think, I do think it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity here in the UK as well. And as you say, I mean, this, this, it does, the scale of it does sound both uh, in equal parts exactly what we need and also quite daunting. And so in terms of taking us from where we are now to, to the Green New Deal being a reality, what are some of the first real tangible things that could be happening to make it, to make it a reality? Well, I think that we've got to organize, you know, <laughs> we've got to get organized around it. I think that we've got to build an incredibly broad based movement and the youth strikers are kind of leading the way with that. Mm. They've already called for a Green New Deal. They're organizing around this um, massive strike on the 20th of September where they're hoping to get hundreds of thousands of people out to kind of come behind them mm. and really build momentum around the idea but I think we also need to see organising in communities which are the most affected communities, you know, flood-impacted communities, uh, farming communities, communities that are impacted by air pollution, mm. um, communities with insecure housing issues. You know, these are the places where we need to be finding ways to build up uh, leaders of those communities who can speak to those issues with authenticity and with passion. We need to be building up uh, policy solutions that come from those people and those communities, which then will communicate better, more widely, because they've they're rooted in in that lived experience. I, I think you know we need to be investing organising time and money in in those in in that that kind of approach, which sort of mimics what the Sunrise Movement have been doing in the US. Yeah. So we're here to say to our politicians. We need you. We need you to back a Green New Deal. You know, before that moment in Nancy Pelosi's office, which sort of 
catapulted their demand onto mm. the, the global stage. You know, they've been organising for months, years yeah. before then, building up young leaders, building up their confidence, helping them tell their story. And then, and then that moment kind of comes. And I think we need to take a similar approach, really. And I think we need to be politically savvy about it. We need to be thinking about where are those places that are also marginal constituencies, where mm. if, if the issue itself became an electoral issue for this, like, impending general election that might come any minute, you know, for yeah. the last two years, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that becomes something that political leaders have to respond to in, like, a big visionary way. Mm. So on this on this issue of kind of like voice and democracy, diversifying who's speaking on climate justice, one of Extinction Rebellion's demands was, as you know, probably that the government should create and be led by the decisions of a citizens assembly on climate and ecological justice. Um, and last week, six House of Commons select committees announced plans to hold a citizens assembly. So what's all that about? What happens next? Will that achieve some of the things that you've that you've pointed to in terms of getting voices heard? So a citizens' assembly is essentially a form of deliberative democracy. Mm. It's almost like jury selection or something where you you kind of try and get a a really representative group of people to develop ideas that then leaders feel have are rooted in real people's concerns and are also sort of, I guess, vote winners in a way because they're kind of coming from from people. Mm. At least that's how I understand it. And I'm by no means an expert on deliberative democracy. But I think that it plays a, I think it could play a hugely important role. Generally speaking, the research suggests that people come out with actually much more radical ideas than you might expect mm. from a cross section of the population. Mm. I think that could be really, really impactful for something like the Green New Deal, for sure. Mm. So let's, let's we're, we're almost, almost done, but let's take a second to just dive into this political moment that we're in. So we've got a new PM on the way, a shaky government and Brexit potentially in October or maybe not. Who knows? Maybe a general election, like you said, always lurking around the corner. How does the climate movement make the most of this political turbulence? If and when, like, like have a plan, have all the players in place. Mm. If and when there's a general election... How do we make sure that climate change, investment, proper investment in climate action from like the Treasury and the Chancellor, the Green New Deal, how do we make sure these are actually election issues in marginal seats? Mm. Like what is the organising that needs to happen in order to support those communities to mobilise and create the noise they need to create to Mm. push politicians? You know, there's some things that have happened like the climate strikers when Greta visited the UK, they convened the first cross-party roundtable of opposition leaders since Brexit, so in two years, oh, wow. which is incredible. And mm. out of that came a commitment from those leaders to stress test their manifestos against a 1.5 degree scenario. Mm. So, you know, if you're able to look at a manifesto and go, you know what, Heathrow expansion doesn't cut it, actually. Like, you can't have... You can't say we're in an emergency. You can't say you want to meet 1.5 and still say we're going to expand Heathrow. And those kinds of things need to become totemic in the minds of the public. Because if if climate change is their number three concern and they see politicians saying they're going to support Heathrow, Mm. we need to help connect the dots. So they go, you know what, that's not enough. So how can we simultaneously push those parties to do more and faster and, and, and demand more from them? I think that's going to be really important in this in this political moment. 
Mm. I mean, it definitely. I, I'm I'm always loath to use the word interregnum on the podcast, but it seems to pop up all the time anyway. Um, and I learned a few years ago. I'm sure you know what it means, but for anyone who doesn't, it's about the uh, the old is dead. It's the birth of the new, um, and it certainly seems like in terms of both the climate movement and the moment that we're in politically around Brexit and yeah, the turbulence that's happening. It's certainly going to be the point which, at which soon uh, people start looking around, as you say, for alternative but it seems like the ground game that's going on in the climate movement at the moment is very much preparing for that in ways that a lot of the other kind of key battlegrounds at the moment aren't and that's super inspiring. Certainly it feels like the framing has changed like we need to be thinking about class and race and workers and all of these things and actually that will be you know how we win (laughs) you know that is not that is the work leaders like the you know, the young strikers who are able to come and speak to migrant rights at the drop of a hat because that is their politics that yeah. is their heart mm. are the people we need to be looking for for how we do that yeah and I mean while at the same time you're having the conversations in the unions and developing green new deal policies and uh, you've got people out yeah. blocking the streets I mean it seems it seems like a pretty expansive um approach <laughs> I said something to someone today I was like yeah it's just everything all at once yeah just all do all the, the things just shut it all, <laughs> all down all the things all now the things. yes <laughs> all the things now great can we call the podcast that that's I like it um okay so the last question from me um is actually a twofer the first so the question is the next year COP26 might happen in the UK and what would this mean for the climate movement here um and the second part of the question is what is COP26 I don't like these technical questions. No, it's fine. Cotton <laughs> Six is a co- is the is the conference of parties, okay. um, and it's basically uh, a meeting of world leaders to discuss climate change and and work mm. on, on pathways together. And I don't know much more about the technicals behind it. I mean, that is all um, we need to know. That, that is a very thorough okay, explainer. Great. Thank you. And yeah, it's looking like it might well take place in the UK in 2020. Mm. I think that whenever these things. So whenever the cop comes to town, uh, <laughs> it, I think what it does is is puts a huge. It, it it could operate as a spotlight on the UK government if you're hosting cop in your country, and you don't have you're missing your self self imposed climate targets. That's not a great look for you. So I think it could provide the impetus for like big commitments to be made in advance of or following in terms of like the UK policy landscape. So organising for like the Green New Deal to be like that to be a key milestone in in that sort of campaign would be key. It's also just a massive mobilizing moment. You get people from all over the world. You Mm. have the opportunity to learn from climate organizers from, you know, small island states, from vulnerable countries. You know, there's a kind of incredible wealth of creativity and ideas sharing that I think really enriches a movement. You know, I was there in Paris for the big red lines mobilization and Mm. it's just really inspiring to be around it can be really energizing for organizers but I suppose it's also important not to see that as like the end point Mm. um it's another milestone it could be a massive opportunity but there's no way it will achieve everything we want it to because these things don't they happen in lots of different ways and and change doesn't just happen with one big conference. So I think we need, we always have to maintain our like resilience to those moments by Mm. seeing them in context. I think. Mm. I was going to ask you a kind of follow up, which was around like, how do we 
sustain the momentum around this kind of thing but it sounds like you kind of answered it then which is you know you have these key milestones that you're organizing around and that you're being energized through while at the same time continuing to build the ground game with the knowledge that as you say one big conference isn't going to change it all exactly and movements have to be resilient and they have to be made up of resilient people um, mm. and, and that work has to be going on at the same time. And for movements, that's, you know, being supported by other groups. Uh, that's like infrastructure building. That's training. That's like mm. building up so many leaders, you know, that it's not all, you know, on, on, on individuals. Mm. And then at the individual level, that's like, you know, take a holiday. Yeah. Um, ideally take the train, but like take a holiday <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, make sure that you don't, think that it's all on you because it can't be Mm. you know absolutely okay well I mean on that note I'm gonna let you uh off this call (laughs) and uh, hopefully (laughs) enjoy the rest of your evening but um Hannah Martin from Greenpeace thank you so much for joining us if people want to hear more from you and about your work and about all the amazing stuff you're doing how can they do that um I guess I'm on Twitter Um, you don't sound (laughs) sure (laughs) <laughs> no, I am. I'm just not used to plugging it. Um, I'm on Twitter at Hannah underscore RM, or you could go to the UKSCN website um, to find out more about the school strikers and their, their strike on the 20th of September. I want to see everyone in the streets. 20th of September. Okay, I'll be there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hannah, again. Thanks, Aisha. That's it for this week, lovely listener. If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly EconPod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.